part the second of this morning's sermon, John chapter 12, verses 49 and 50. John 12, 49 and 50. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a lot of questions from that text. Like, the, like, when was this command given? He says, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Now, if we want to be careful with our doctrine of God, we don't want to advocate that the Father has vocal cords. God is spirit, right? So this... You can't take this strictly literal. Before the incarnation, the son had ears with which he heard the father who has lips speak. Okay, so we don't want to go that way, right? Right. Some sort of knowledge is shared by the father and the son. The knowledge of the commission of Christ to obtain everlasting life. When was that knowledge communicated between the Father and the Son? Was the Son endowed with uh, this knowledge during his earthly pilgrimage, according to his human nature, according to his created mind? He had a created mind, you know, because he was very man. This this command is everlasting life that was spoken to him, commanded to him by the Father. Does he mean by this, oh, I read the Bible, I read the Old Testament, and I understood my identity and mission based on the written revelation of God. Could Could he mean that? He could mean that. I don't think that's what it means, but he could mean that. Have you ever thought of that? According to his human nature, the incarnate Son of God learned about himself in the Old Testament, reading the Old Testament. Uh, one of the Puritans said, basically, we have an Old Testament so that, according to his human nature, the incarnate Son of God would learn of his vocation and identity. Kind of boggles the mind. So, I want to think about this. His command is everlasting life. Believers in Christ, listen to these words and let's think through them. His command is everlasting life. That is, the Son is saying the Father has this command and it terminates on the Son and it's called everlasting life. 
Do you think that this truth, whatever it means, is reflective of the purpose of God before the foundation of the world? was obtaining of and granting of eternal life predates this world in terms of the divine purpose. Could we even say that this command, his command is everlasting life, reflects an intra-Trinitarian purpose worked out in time and utterly dependent upon divine sovereignty in meticulous detail. Could we say that? We could say, well, yeah. So the words, his command is everlasting life, at least reflect something transcending this world, the divine purpose, the decree of God. Paul says that God works, this is providence, all things according to the counsel of his will. So his will God's works, excuse me, are counseled by God's will. The command that our Lord speaks about here reflects God's will for the salvation of sinners. His command is everlasting life. Does that reflect the divine decree or will unto salvation? Yes, it does. So in that sense, the truth of this thing, this statement, transcends this world and predates the world. As God has willed the salvation of sinners, so God works to that end, and no one can stop him. God's decree is the blueprint, creation, providence, redemption, and ultimate consummation are the execution of that decree. The everlasting life mentioned by our Lord was promised before time began. You ever heard those words? Excuse me, it's Titus chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. In hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. This verse says that God promised eternal life before time began, or it's literally, some of your versions might have this in the margin, before time's eternal. In other words, before creation. Before the foundation of the world is another phrase Paul uses in Ephesians 1.4. This is promised eternal life before time began. His command is everlasting life, eternal life. His commission to the Son, the Son was commissioned with obtaining and granting eternal life. But was the Son commissioned to that only in time during his earthly pilgrimage. Here's an interesting question from Titus. Again, promised, God promised eternal life before time began. To whom was this promise made? 
Okay, if it's before time began, there are no creatures. Right? Because time is, is a creature. It's the, I forgot the technical, defini- the technical definition of time. What is it? It's the, the mode of, the manner by which, uh, that's what I get, yeah, change. That's what I get for not putting it in my notes. It doesn't matter what time is. It does matter what time is. But before time, before we measure change among creatures, that's what time is, the measurement of change among creatures, thank you, there's eternity, right? There's God, and that's it. There's no creatures, there's no angels, there's no men, there's no animals, there's no plants, there's no stars. Before time began. To whom was this promise made? Here's John Owen. He says, eternal life is said to be promised of God before the world began, Titus 1-2. That is, to the Son of God for us on his undertaking on our behalf. Ooh. So the divine purpose has within its sphere the Son of God undertaking, doing things for others before the foundation of the world. He is to be incarnate. He wasn't incarnate yet, but he was to become incarnate. And he was to undertake on our behalf to procure this thing called everlasting life. So his command is everlasting life. In the counsels of God before the creation of the world, what the theologians call the covenant of redemption, this intra-Trinitarian pact to do things for creatures, to save them by virtue of the incarnate Son of God suffering and then entering into his glory. Um, you remember that text in Luke 22 where, well, it'd be good to just turn there. So Luke 22, we have another glimpse into this, some sort of divine purpose before the incarnation. Luke 22, um, 29. I'll I'll read the New King James Version. And I bestow, some versions might say give, I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me. I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me. If we had our Greek New Testaments open and were able to read them, we'd see a weird-looking word there. You've heard it before. Covenant translates diatheke. If you haven't heard that Greek word before, that doesn't matter. But we translate it covenant. That's the way it should be translated. There's a bunch of places in our English translations where this word, a form of the word for covenant is used from 
based on this diatheke thing. And, and I don't know for the life of me why the English translators didn't just say, and I covenant upon you a kingdom, or I bestow in a, a covenantal kingdom. I'm going to give you a kingdom that's related to a covenant, and this kingdom that I'm going to give you, or you're going to be citizens of, it was actually covenanted to me by my father. So older Reformed theologians say, there it is. There's this pretemporal pact Pactum salutis, right? The covenant of salvation that's actually purposed before times eternal. And we have a glimpse of the knowledge of the incarnate Son of God of the before times eternal divine pact. This, this is one of those texts. And I think I didn't mention it in the first hour because I was trying to address primarily unbelievers. But I think the John 12 text, actually, if we pull the curtains back behind 1249 and 50, I think what we're going to see there is this pact, this covenant of of redemption, this purpose to... Give sinners a kingdom that was earned for them by the incarnate Son of God. Matter of fact, I almost didn't preach 49 and 50 because almost to a man, all the old guys went to intra-Trinitarian stuff from John 12, 49 and 50, and I'm going, that's going to be hard to preach. And most, starting with John Gill, the moderns didn't didn't want to go that direction. So I'm doing both. I'm saying, I think this command that the Son of God received from the Father has its roots in the eternal purpose of God, and so that we can kind of trace the steps back and say, God has decreed the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ. When the incarnate Son of God assumes our nature, he assumes a rational faculty excuse me, a created intellect, and he, as his body grew and developed, so his soul, including his mind, accumulated more knowledge, and he always used it skillfully. He grew in wisdom and stature among men, uh, Luke 2.40 and 2.52, right? According to his human nature, he, he, he learned. According to the form of a servant, he learned, according to the form of God, he's omniscient. According to the form of a servant, he suffered. According to the form of God, he's impassable. According to the form of servant, he accumulated information from what we call the Old Testament. He drew conclusions. At what point... Was he mature enough to understand his own identity as the incarnate Son of God according to his human nature? I don't know. Probably pretty young. Certainly by the time he was 12, something's unique already about him. 
you know, these are speculative kind of things, but it's great is the mystery of godliness, right? God was manifested in the flesh. Here we have this wonderful statement by our Lord, the depths of which no man can plummet, at least all the way to the bottom. We can't draw out everything there is in these words. But it is very interesting that um, Paul ends up saying stuff like he does in Titus 1 and 2. Now, listen, where do you think Paul got some of this language before times eternal? Uh, a lot of times when I answer that, ask that question, the answer is always the same. Jesus, right? Listen to John 6, 38 through 40. Our Lord says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I'll raise him up at the last day. I think Jesus believed in the covenant of redemption. Notice this language. That of all he has given me, I should lose none, but should raise it up at the last day. Has given, lose none, proof I'm going to raise him up in the last day. John 10, 17 and 18 says this, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. Only God raises the dead. This command I have received from my Father. Similar language, John 6 has everlasting life. John 10 says, this command I received from my Father. Eternal life was purposed before the world began. Eternal life was purchased in time by our Lord. And eternal life is granted in full to all who believe the gospel. Now, we get the down payment in this life, and we get the fullness of eternal life in the next. But if you have the Son, you have the life, right? First John 5, 11, and 12. You're going, I'm enjoying eternal life right now? Yeah. Um, grace is but glory in the bud. A Puritan said that. And no, I wasn't alive when he said it. Grace now is glory in the bud. In other words, it's going to develop slowly, but surely, some of the wives are going, yeah, my husband surely develops really slow. Um, uh, we're kept through faith by the power of God unto the day of salvation. We grow, we develop, we go up, we go down, we get discouraged, we are, we're encouraged, all those things. But someday, after 
dying, you go absent from the body, present with the Lord. But even after that, after the intermediate state, in the eternal state, when soul is brought back and united with this renewed body, like, like we read last week uh, from our confession, when that takes place, that, that's going to be the full harvest, okay? But we don't want to discredit or diminish this fact. We have and are enjoying everlasting life now. There's a hymn I'm going to close with. It's by, written by Robert Murray McShane. It says, when this passing world is done, this is hymn number 600. When this passing world is done, when has sunk yon glaring sun, when we stand with Christ in glory, looking o'er life's finished story, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When I hear the wicked call on the rocks and hills to fall, when I see them start and shrink on the fiery deluge brink, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When the praise of heaven I hear, loud as thunders to the ear, loud as many waters noise, sweet as harp's melodious voice, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. Chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side, by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. His command is everlasting life. The Son was commissioned to gain life and to grant life. And we should be uh, very thankful. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray your blessings on it to our soul's well-being. And also that you would bless the supper for our uh, benefit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.